Hello, hello. It is Matt Weaver with BibleTruthProject.com here with another exciting episode. And today uh, I'm going to be discussing two different things. The first of all, um, I'm going to finish kind of the thoughts on uh, the book of Isaiah. Uh, as I had mentioned before, that there was a small group of us that had been studying Isaiah. We finished the book and uh, there's some interesting takeaways that I'll, I'll <clears throat> speak about. But I'm also going to speak a little bit about Framework, And I know I spoke a bit about framework before, but I'm going to just expand upon that a little bit. And um, it should be an interesting episode. So let's dig into it. Um, I'm just scrolling down through. I took um, actually 20-some pages of notes, actually 26 pages of notes. And so I'm uh, looking through here. And uh, whoops, I went too far here. And I just want to cover some of the things that I t- took away. There were some interesting things that I caught in Isaiah. Of course, I've studied Isaiah before, but every time you go through it, you learn. Every time you go through the Bible, you learn something new. You learn a different angle. You learn a b- little bit of extra information that God has been uh, has prepared you to receive. And so, it's always exciting for me to study these books because you get this new layer of freshness, uh, a new layer of of insight that you didn't have before. That is simply because. It's the nature of God to continually show us bits and pieces. And we'll never fully have all that, uh, the complete understanding. There's this unsearchable nature to God that you simply can't exhaust learning about him. He is just infinitely so much uh, more interesting and exhausts all of our capacity to understand um, who he is. But... We're going to dig back into this, and um, of course, we've talked about the apocalyptic nature of the Bible before, but Isaiah just so vividly reaffirms this narrative where God judges Israel, and but he's going to restore. And that's one of the things that happens throughout history is, you know, God shows Israel as his people's inheritance, and then he, uh, you know, they live in covenant relationship for, you know, centuries, and then finally the idolatry is bad enough that God just simply can't take it anymore, and he he punishes them um, according to the according to the covenant. So the diasporas are the ultimate fulfillment of the punishment, if you will, and um, of course that's part of it. But the prophets speak about that that they're going to be judged and and put out of the land, which is what uh, the Bible said would take place if they broke the covenant. But even more importantly than that, it says he will regather. So the regathering of Israel is a crucial part of biblical eschatology, of of what God is saying that he will do about his people. So as we dig into this, um, I think it's important to remember this kind of messianic framework that we've I've spent a lot of episodes talking about. So I don't want to necessarily repeat myself over and over and over, but it's so important. You understand the framework, you'll understand um, the narrative. So if you look in, for instance, uh, we studied up to 40 chapters uh, uh, up to this last uh, session, and then we had here, I'm, I'm basically going from 40 on. But there's this, again, this connection between God's judgment. He's going to bring people from the east, the north, the south, his punishment, whatever. Um, and then he starts giving these little illusions, like in chapter 42, behold my servant who I hold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice or make his voice heard in the street. A bruised weed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. 
it's interesting to me that this picture of Jesus, which is what it is, you know, it says his voice will not be heard in the street. It's interesting. He won't raise, he's not going to cry out or raise his voice or make his voice heard in the street. In other words, he's a soft spoken person, not a radical, crazy, um, tenacious person that is shouting all the time. And no, he's a very gentle mannered person, very mild character. Uh, in some ways. Yet at the same time, it speaks of this tremendous wrath that will be poured out. Um, in that same chapter in 42, it talks about in verse 15, I will lay waste the mountains and hills and dry up their vegetation. I will turn rivers into islands and dry up the pools. It's something that you see a lot in prophecy is that God is going to bring calamity, famine, pestilences, earthquakes, uh, dry up rivers, these are all part of the birth pain process that God will pour out in his anger against the world for how they've treated his people. And not only that, he'll also do that in judgment of his own people for what they have done. So it's judging the whole world. I mean, ultimately, it's what it's about. But part of that judgment is also pouring out wrath against the, the earth and, and, and judging humans that way as well. But at the same time, you know, God is ultimately going to regather. So 43, again, you know, you hear about the judgment, whatever 43, you get um, basically talking about regathering and also talking about his disappointment in his uh, people. But one of the things I noticed, uh, which is, I guess I should say that is a theme that happens all over prophetic scripture. The regathering of Israel is central in prophecy. If you, if you want to understand prophecy, first and foremost, is the regathering of Israel. It is the sign that you're in the right thing. Um, it, it just is. It's the sign of the prophets. Now, keep going to uh, chapter 44. There's an interesting connection here um, that I I never really noticed before. I'm sure some people have. I just never noticed before. And it basically says this, 44 verse 6, it says, Thus saith the Lord Israel's king and his redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last, and there is no gods besides me, or no God beside me. This is one of these interesting things that I immediately in my mind, I'm like, I recognize from a different part of the Bible, and that is Revelation uh, chapter 1, 17, 18, when Jesus is declaring his name, um, John is, falls at his feet uh, like a dead man, but he placed his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid. I am the first and the one last, the one who lives was dead, but look, I am alive forever and ever. So here in Isaiah, you have a direct connection, a direct phrase that is 100% prophetic. And in the Old Testament, Israel's king, notice this, thus saith the Lord, okay, yod heh vav heh, God, or, or Yahweh, Israel's king and his redeemer, the Lord of hosts, okay, so note, here's, Think about this. This is almost a plurality, if you will, in a way. So first you're talking about the Lord or God, yod heh Israel's king and his redeemer, the Lord. So God uh, obviously is Israel's king and he is also Israel's redeemer, which means he will buy them back. So redeeming means the Lord of hosts. So the first and the last, what does that mean? First, he is Israel's king and he is Israel's redeemer. It seems to be a connection to first, he is Israel's king, and he's Israel's redeemer. He is the first and the last, and there is no other God beside him. He's, he is ultimate inhabitant of eternity. 
And Jesus declares himself to be the first and the last, which is amazing because it's directly out of Isaiah and the connection is uncanny. It basically means Jesus is Israel's king and Israel's redeemer. And I think that's just an absolute fantastic connection. One of the other really fascinating things that happens is in chapter 45, um, many years before Cyrus is even born, God writes about Cyrus and speaks about him. And when Cyrus comes to Israel, he, he's astonished because it prophesies what he's going to do and how God will use him before he was even born. It's one of the reasons that uh, Cyrus became such a champion of, of God, of the God of Israel and uh, the Jewish people. And I think it's, uh, it's, a, it's astounding and then you have verse 46, one of my favorite verses, uh, chapter or chapter 46, verse 10, declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient time, what is yet to come, saying, my purpose will stand and I will accomplish all that I please. In other words, God is not making this up as he goes along. He has planned all this from the beginning. He will accomplish what he wants, which is ultimately a kingdom on earth, surrounded by people that love him. He's going to accomplish it. Chapter uh, 48, we again revisit, and there's this title, the first and the last. He again uh, calls himself that as the creator. And uh, it just continues. 49 talks about the restoration of Israel. Again, talks about um, the restoration of the tribes of Israel. Um, is it too trifling a thing you should be... Uh, that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and restore the preserved ones of Israel. So it's speaking of uh, the Messiah, if you will, in a way. So I will give to you a, a light for the nations. Of course, it's speaking uh, of Israel in a sense here, uh, that you should be my salvation to the end of the earth. Thus saith the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, the Holy One, to the to the one despised, the one to the one the nation abhors to a servant of rulers, kings will see and arise and princes will bow down because of the Lord who is faithful. Very messianic phrase uh, in the Bible or verses. And the day of salvation comes up over and over and over the day of the Lord, the day of salvation. It's, it's not good for the enemies of God, but good for the saints. Um, Isaiah 51 declares that he's going to make the, the wilderness of Zion, which is the Dead Sea Valley in the South like the Garden of Eden. It's going to be bloom and it's going to rejoice. It's going to be unbelievable beauty in the land that God is going to restore in that day, which is, again, the promises are just so amazing. Um, and people will say that your God reigns. Uh, 53, I mean, everybody knows Isaiah 53, the most probably one of the most magnificent portions of scripture in the Bible, um, just absolutely breathtaking. And 54 talks about um, the possessing of the nations, Israel possessing the nations, if you will. Um, chapter, or chapter 54, verse 7, for a brief moment I deserted you, but I will regather you with great compassion. This happens all over scripture, just on and on and on and on that talks about that. Um, 55, that he'll make an everlasting uh, covenant with them, directly tying that to the trustworthy, uh, loyal ones, if you will, to David, um, which again is an Israel connection. And then this verse 11, so my word will, uh, will be that goes out from my mouth, it will not return to me in vain, but I will accomplish what I intend. I will succeed in what I sent it for. Again, just 
amazing. Uh, verse 13, talking about restoration language. If you notice in Genesis, it says thorns and briars will come from the earth. Here, God uses the language that instead of a thorn bush, a cypress tree, instead of a briar, a myrtle. So there's a restoration of the land and that trees will grow like weeds do today. It'll just, the vegetation will melt the hills. It'll be so magnificent of this uh, restoration. And then uh, 56 is one of these great chapters where it brings in outsiders. So thus saith the Lord, um, do not let a son of the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. Of course not. If we have joined ourselves with God, he will accept us even as though we are his people. And uh, speaks of that all the time. And uh, verse six on it said, also the foreigner who joins himself to the Lord to minister him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, all who keep from profaning the Sabbath and hold the fast to my covenant. These I will bring to my holy mountain and let them rejoice in my house of prayer. Um, Their burning offerings and sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. So again, God, um, will do that. And then it says, I will gather still others to him, to those already gathered, speaking of the dispersed of Israel. In uh, verse eight, it says, the Lord who gathers the dispersed of Israel declares, I will gather still others to him, to those already gathered. That's very uh, similar to the concept that we have today. Like we have, for instance, um, a gathering of Israel today of some of the Jews, but, and, and there's coming into the land, but God's declaring that he himself personally will gather even more to them that are already gathered, which goes into the whole out of the nations, regathering the descendants of the dispersed of Israel connection that I often allude to that I think will take place when the Messiah returns prophetically. Um, God talks about those loving those with contrite hearts, all of that good stuff. Um, very famous verses that we uh, read in churches nowadays all the t- all the time. Chapter sixty-one, very famous, when Yeshua stood up in Nazareth and he read that section of scripture, and then he said, "This day is this fulfilled in you," which is basically Isaiah's uh, uh, per, uh, acceptable year of the Lord's favor. And I think this is speaking um, seemingly to Jesus' earthly first coming and earthly ministry, that there would be a year of favor to begin with. And um, that's what his ministry was. Most likely, probably a year. It could be three and a half years. But but based on the evidence I've seen, the whole one-year ministry um, makes more sense. And then you have uh, Isaiah 63, who talks about... Um, the him the Lord coming and treading the wine press uh, wine press sixty three one through six who is this coming from Edom and crimson garments from Basra this one splendid in his apparel pressing forward in his great might it is I who speak in righteousness mighty to save why is your apparel so red and your garments um, like one who treads in the wine press I've trodden the wine press alone from the peoples no man was with me uh, I mean it just keeps going. For a day of vengeance was in my heart and a year of re- redemption has come. So it's giving time frame. You know, there's a, a day of vengeance, but a year of redemption. And and it's it's just amazing to see this language over and over. And then it carries over the New Testament. This what this is what informed the worldview of the apostles and disciples. This these texts, these this understanding. 
And something else, I remember Leonard Ravenhill using this verse, oh, that you would rend the heavens. And he always would kind of speak of that in terms of revival, and I always kind of thought of it that way. But if you look at the context is, you know, there's a prayer of Isaiah for God to rend the heavens and to do what he says that he will do. Look down from heaven and see uh, from your holy, glorious, lofty abode. Where are your zeal and mighty deeds? Are the yearnings of your heart, your compassions withheld from me? For you are our father, even if Abraham would not know us or Israel would not recognize us. You, Lord, our father, our redeemer from everlasting is your name. The Lord, why do you cause us to stray from your ways and harden your heart from the fearing of you? Return for your servants' sakes, the tribes of your heritage. Briefly, your holy people possessed it. Our foes have trampled your sanctuary. We have become like those over whom you have never ruled, like those not called by your name. In other words, like the Gentiles. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down that the mountains might quake at your presence. Such a magnitude of words. In chapter 64, it kind of continues. And then 65, it talks about um, the Gentiles. I was sought by those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. Of course, it's the nations, the Gentiles, uh, to a nation not called by my name. You know, And it says, he says, I'm here, or here am I, here am I, hineni, hineni. And then it talks about from there that his, that his chosen ones will inherit the land and his servants will dwell in the land and that the Valley of Ahor, which is the Jordan Valley, will be a place for herds. Um, it's going to be a magnificent restoration again. Um, and then it, it has this different references to that he will call his servants by another name. There's several references in the Bible, even the New Testament, that say that. Old Testament and New. And so I think that it's one of those things that we have to, um, it's, it's just one of those special things that God will give us a new name. And then Isaiah 65, the latter part, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. And then it describes this magnificent millennial period um, when things are restored, creations restored, um, inhabitants will dwell in peace, etc. And then Isaiah 66, again, talking about contrite heart, etc., and in that, it talks about uh, the miracle of the rebirth of Israel. So Isaiah 66, 7 and 9, a lot of scholars believe that it's referring to modern day Israel, which would kind of make sense because it says this, before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came, she delivered a male child. So think of it this way, before she was in labor. So before the birth pains hit her, she actually gave birth and she gave birth to what? Well, the land. Who has heard of such a thing? Who has uh, seen such things? Can a land be born in a day? Can a nation, this is the point, be brought forth at once? And that is really what happened in 1948. It was literally from no nation to a nation, so suddenly. For as soon as Zion was in labor, she gave birth to her children. Now here's the deal. Will I bring the moment of birth and not give delivery? So will I cause, uh, will I, who will I, who caused delivery shut up the womb? This is an allusion, I believe, to the birth pains. So it's backwards. He delivered Israel, or Israel was born before the birth pains of delivery, which means the birth of Israel happens first, then the birth pains of the delivery happen second, which births the kingdom. So in other words, Israel is born but it yearns for its king. 
I think that's the what the prophetic uh, in, in implications. And then several uh, verses later, then immediately it's talking about exactly that, what the birth pains are, and ultimately end of that, which is, for behold, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For the fire and his sword, the Lord will execute judgment on all flesh and those slain by the Lord will be many. So again, judgment narrative. And then uh, the final verses in Isaiah um, basically says this from verse 19 on, then they will declare my glory among the nations. Then they will bring all your kinsmen from all nations as an offering to the Lord. So notice your kinsmen from all nations. So all Israel at the time of his return, at the day of the Lord, all those will be returned. And then it says an interesting phrase because it's a mystery. It's the, the, one of the mysteries of the Bible to me has been the 144,000. It's been, was a mystery to me for a long time, but I, I do think I know what's going on. Here it says in verse 21, for I will also take some of them as priests for, uh, and for Levites. I think that is what the 144,000 is about. Their special um, selection of as priests and Levites to, to be in the Messianic temple uh, 144,000 to 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 operate the priesthood, um, which if you look at Revelation, it does just simply, I mean, it's of uh, 11 of the tribes that he takes 12,000 each to, to accomplish it. So it just makes sense. In the same line, he then says, for just as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, will endure before me, so your descendants and your name will endure. Now, this idea of new heavens and new earth, a lot of people think, you know, that means this world is going to disintegrate. That's not really what the Old Testament describes. It describes the Lord coming in fire, burning elements of the world. And it describes geological shifts, but it's really describing a rebirth. So there's fundamental changes taking place. For instance, uh, Israel, uh, Jerusalem suffers a massive earthquake in which the city is divided. And there's a new earth rise that happens. A big plateau lifts up. That is where the new city of Jerusalem will be located. So it describes some some big earthquakes and shakings and things like that haven't happened since the beginning of time, but it doesn't necessarily say that the whole earth will disintegrate and that there's a new earth by way of new creation. There is a recreation or a re- renewing, if you will. The Hebrew word for new is often has a renewal connotation. So it's not as direct as in English, when we say new, we always think brand new. New can just mean uh, renewed or, you know, it's not necessarily as stark as the English word is. So by all descriptions, Jesus says, I make all things new. So part of the process that we're going through now is, is part of the making new process. And ultimately his return He's on earth, so he's not destroying the earth. He's on earth. He's destroying the evil. He's destroying the wicked, and then he restores the world once it's free from the grips of the evil ones. So, And then it talks about that in that time, <clears throat> for just as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, will endure before me, so your descendants and your name will endure. And it will come to pass that from one new moon to another and one Shabbat to another, all flesh which... Uh, will come bef- down before me, which means everybody's coming down uh, from one new moon to another. So every month, 
And every Shabbat, from one Shabbat to another. So every Shabbat, all flesh will come to bow down before me, says the Lord. And as they leave, this is interesting, as they leave where? Jerusalem. They will look on the corpses of the people who rebelled against me. For their worm will not die and their fire will not be quenched, and they will be a horror to all flesh. So in other words, what the Bible is describing here is that the pit, Gehenna, the fiery uh, final place of those who have rebelled against God, um, you could say probably similar to the concept of the burial of Gog and Magog. Uh, but this is describing Gehenna. This is the place of fire. This is the Genhinnom Valley um, connection. So the, ish, the idea of Gehenna or hell and the Genhinnom Valley, um, this, is, this is where this imagery comes from. So it says that every time we go in the kingdom that is to come, every time we go on every Sabbath and every new moon, we go to Jerusalem and then, as we leave the city, we will be reminded of the rebellion of human history because right there will be the lake of, of fire where all of the sinners, the rebellious ones, will be as an example for us for eternity. Unbelievable. Absolutely unbelievable. So in light of that, how do we live? One of the things I think that is so key for us to understand is that in the Christian world, we so easily... Uh, twist scripture to basically fit a Christian worldview, which Christian worldview is just really a Gentile's application of the Jewish hope. Um, and ultimately, most theological systems today really are based on the concepts of inauguration, um, which means that Jesus started something new. Uh, they're based on the ideas of supersessionism, that the church is the new Israel and has replaced it, and that Christians are the new Jews. Those are all concepts that have come uh, as way of breaking free from the Jewish roots of the faith. But if you study the prophets, that is actually considered to be um, incorrect. By long shot, the prophets did not speak that the Gentiles would take over things. And um, honestly, it's, uh, it's really a horrible application of scripture. And it was all because Israel wasn't out in the land. They were got kicked out after 70 AD and all of a sudden Christians had a Bible and they had no Israel and they didn't know what to do with it. So they were like, well, that must mean God is done with them. And because of those fateful decisions and not really believing scripture, we've were left with a tradition that in alienated the Jewish people, alienated the survivors because God was angry with them in our mind, which is just unfortunate. It's horrible. But, um, is why it's so important to get the framework right. When you have the proper framework, which is God's desire to restore Israel, God's desire to settle with Israel, to settle Jerusalem, to gather us, which are Gentile believers, but we join to the commonwealth that the Bible makes so clear in the New Testament that we are joined in the commonwealth. Uh, his heart is to gather us together and to be our God on earth like he intended and to make the earth the new global Eden, which will be magnificent. So when we go to paradise, it'll be great, be amazing and glorious, but it'll only give us a taste of what God wants to do, and that is to turn this world into uh, a much bigger paradise. So that is all I have for today. I hope you were blessed. And um, uh, again, it's a great book. If you want to study the book of Isaiah, I highly recommend it. Do so, and you will be blessed. <laughs>